Hi, I'm uh, Bruce Altman. I played Alan Sappinsley on The Sopranos. And you're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, this project, and what it's all about, please spread the word. Share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on all the socials at Potabing, and if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash Potabing. To play in the next trivia show for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabing on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Bruce Altman. Bruce played Alan Sappinsley, the owner of Whitecaps, on the show. Alan called in from New Haven, Connecticut, to share insights on his soprano story and other career highlights. Bruce has been a part of many all-time projects in film and television, and it was great to be able to select a handful of my favorites and organize his reflections on them into one podcast. Here's Bruce. So, some foundation setting. Where are you from originally? I was born in the Bronx in New York, and I grew up in a a little town north of there in Rockland County called New City. And how did you get into acting? Oh, that's a very good question. I, um, I was pre-med in college and it really wasn't going particularly well for me my freshman year. I really was feeling quite inept. Uh, Where'd you go to college? I went to SUNY at Albany as an undergrad, uh, which is uh, now they call the University at Albany, Albany State, the New York State, uh, a state school, very fine school. And, uh, and I didn't, uh, I was really feeling lost. and. Uh, I had this feeling if I'm going to go back for my sophomore year, I'm going to take an acting class. I have no idea why I felt that. I, I think probably because I felt I, if I understood more about myself and the world, I would have said I need to go into therapy. But uh, I didn't. And so acting seemed like the closest thing to that. And I, I, I went to the professor and he said, well, you got to take acting one, which is the theater history you know, with the 101 class. Right. And I said, no, no, I can't do that, man. I really just need <laughs> class. His name was Jim Leonard, and he let me in. It was a basic class. We did, like, little exercises, and at the end of it, we did a monologue. I had no idea what a monologue was or anything. It was really quite... So, um, anyway, I took that acting class, and then, you know, I did a play in my quad. We did it. I was a good... I have a good ear. And uh, a good man, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. I played Snoopy, and it was like uh, it was just great. It was really fun. Uh, a lot of the other classes I was taking, school didn't really feel fun. You know, happiness was not, which is funny. You know, happiness is one of the great songs from uh, "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown," and happiness was not uh, really ever a focus uh, in my family growing up, that wasn't really, you know, it was succeeding, working hard, you know, being a good person, but being happy was not something. And I really think I was not feeling happy. And, uh, acting was 
also, I was a very good athlete when I was a kid. I did a lot of athletics. And acting also was, was so intense, so terrifying being on stage, and but uh, very exciting. It really was a comparable uh, feeling in certain ways. So that's, uh, that was the beginning, and then people would cast me in their plays, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's funny you mention happiness. It's not actually, even today, in, t- in today's society, it's not something that's generally uh, the norm. And people finding their happiness and finding what it is they are meant to do and finding a purpose. So it's really cool to hear you mention that that was one of your drivers. I think so. I, I don't. Not that I knew it at the time, but I, since we're talking now and I'm in my 60s, I can tell you I believe from this vantage. Uh, but that was part of it. And it certainly was a wonderfully uh, fun stuff. And then I still ended up, I had a biology major and an English major. But uh, I did plays throughout. And then I got a master's degree in education so I could support myself if I moved to New York to try to be an actor, which I did. I moved to New York and I was there for eight years. Um, and uh, I studied a lot with a lot of wonderful teachers in the city. Uh I'll give you a few names in case anybody's interested. Bill Esper, just passed away this past year, was a wonderful uh, pedagogue of Meisner technique, and uh, he studied with the great Geraldine Page, who uh, ended up writing my recommendation to Yale. I ended up eventually going to Yale when I was 32 years old to the drama school there. Is that why you live in New Haven now, still? Yeah. yeah. Cool. You never left. I didn't. uh, My family... uh, Settled in, my wife's an attorney, and she uh, was able to work there and uh, and different things. And, uh, you know, I'd take the train into New York, and it turned out to be, uh, I've been there for 32 years. Incredible. <laughs> longest, longest place I've ever lived, yeah. But, um, so, uh, Bill Hickey, Herbert Berghoff, I stayed with a lot of wonderful, wonderful teachers. But, you know, ultimately, I, I did a checkout play in New York with Seagull. I played Trigor in a great role. I had studied with all of these people. I had no I had no idea what I was doing. You know, ultimately, when it came to a difficult text, I did a production of True West, the Shepherd play, and uh, I, I realized I just didn't know really how to approach a role, even though people would tell me I was talented and I did certain things really well and I was really good at certain things. But it's a very frustrating feeling to... Um, not feel like you know what you're doing. And certainly, as an actor, if you're going to work professionally, uh, particularly in film and television, you know, you just kind of show up and work. You don't rehearse. You really have to have an approach. You really have to know how to read a script, how to uh, make, uh, create a character, develop a character, play a character. And that stuff really kind of gelled for me. And it may just be that I'm a slow learner. Right? Uh, you know, I was at Yale from 32 to 35, but I was great, great teacher there, Earl Gister, who's also deceased. Wonderful, wonderful, most profound teacher I've ever had in my life. And he, uh, I think, you know, he. if you read Stella Adler's book, there's a book of Stella Adler's on Ibsen, Chekhov, and Strindberg, which is basically a transcript of her class. And the stuff we did was very similar to her scene analysis. Even the acting, the scene study classes were really about uh, playing actions, which I still don't understand what that means, but other people do. And uh, 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 really understanding the, the character and uh, and what is the story, not only the, the written story, but imagining beforehand and 
mm. you know, kind of outside the realm of that. So, yeah, it was really uh, profound, and it took me a long time, but I ultimately got to the point where I could uh, attempt to become a, you know, professional actor. Well, your training, it shows in your work. There's a lot of uh, shows I'm going to ask you about and projects that you're a part of. Um, I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit, um, and then I'm going to go back in time. Um, How did The Sopranos happen for you? What's your backstory for The Sopranos? Well, I I don't remember if I auditioned. I auditioned for it a lot. I, I... I love David Chase, and I think he really, he liked me and was interested in me. Uh, and so I auditioned for several roles on there. Um, and I remember going in there, and you know, at Silver Cup Studios, I'm Queens. And, Do you remember any of the roles? Yeah, I think one of the roles was The Priest. Remember in the first season, you know, with The Father Priest? Father Intentola, yeah. That was something they considered me for. And there were a couple of others, and... Uh, you know, it was amazing. Um, but so I would get called out there and I went out there several times. I never got anything, but it was, um, you know, I felt, uh, that, you know, I was someone that they had some interest in. And then out of the blue, uh, I got this audition for, which I, I said to them, Sapinsley, no, no, it's Sapinsley. <laughs> you know, that show was so perfectly you know, the reason I think that show was so, well, there's so many reasons that show was so great, right? It was just an actual, I mean, it's just a, a great artistic uh, moment hmm. uh, in, in history that has really changed television and stuff. But the writing, uh, it, it ran like a top. You know, they really were on top of things. Uh, they had great directors. Uh, the script hit great writers. You know, the, the woman, the husband and wife team that wrote my episode. I mean, Robin just, Green, Mitchell Burgess. Um, I mean, just geniuses, you know, fantastic. And the writing, all of them, like David Mamet, even though Mamet didn't write it, but, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm in the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Right, I, which I'm going to ask uh, you about. Asked about that. Uh, yeah, but the writing of that, it was like rolling down a hill. It's, it's really character-based. And um, so much of the work is kind of done for you. Or a lot of the secrets... It's so great that it gives you time and space. You don't have to work so hard to make the lines work. You know, that you're spending all your time just learning your lines because they're not really, it's like a puzzle that doesn't fit and you're trying to make it work. It's like, it's it's a beautifully laid out, wonderful landscape. And all you have to do is play in it and imagine different things. And that's what The Sopranos, I think, all across was. I think it's one of the reasons, you know, some of the actors you'll see in there were just magnificent and uh, are great in so many other things they do. Not everyone in things afterwards. You see how great that show was. You know, they a lot of the people did their best work on that show because that show just provided just, it was a, a beautiful template for an actor to do his thing or her thing. You have 106 uh, film and television credits as current on IMDb right now. Where does this a few more coming out? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, where does the Sopranos rank in writing in terms of quality and in, and in terms of heft on your resume? I mean, that's the best writing of an episode. You can't imagine doing one thing. I mean, that is a truly uh, it was you know magnificent. I had so much to do in there, and I mean. Uh, you know, for me, my favorite part of that, or I thought my most successful part, let me put it this way, I, you know, I, it was just so great. Whether or not I succeeded at it or fulfilled everything I wanted to, 
I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm the hanging judge. I'm my worst uh, critic, unfortunately. Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe other people agree with me or think I'm worse than I think I am. But, but I thought the thing that really worked for me on that was that last scene when we're listening to the music. Yes. It's just, it, there's not that much, but it's a great scene. It really is so wonderful. I worked with Liz Larson. It was so great in that. And, you know, it's just, these are complex. I mean, it's just a, it's wonderful. I, I've actually had a chance to work on a lot of good things. Uh, I've, I've, I've worked on a lot of really quality projects, which I'm so grateful for. Because, you know, the work, uh, the great writing is where you get a chance to do your best work because it, it somehow enlargens or enriches, uh, it gets the tuning fork. You know I mean? It, it awakens that tuning fork inside, mm. and all of a sudden it starts vibrating, and you really get a chance to do, uh, uh, go beyond, uh, you know, beyond your wildest dreams in some ways. The episode that we're discussing is Whitecaps. It's the season four finale, the episode that you appeared in. Universally... No, that, what about that, that episode? What about, uh, you know, the hus- uh, Tony and uh, Carmella? I mean, that fight, her crime, she looked like the sad clown coming out of that. Can you imagine all of the, I still can see all the mascara running down her face. I mean, that was, I was just a magnificent a shoe, and he, uh, just everything. It was a magnificent uh, episode. It was a... Uh, Incredible. It is universally regarded as one of the best episodes of television ever. I agree. I just What are some notable moments or experiences from your time on the show? What specific things come to mind for you today? I know it was a long time ago, but it was a legendary episode and your performance in it was legendary as well. It is a one episode character, but every time you turn on white caps, we look forward to Anthony Soprano going against the other AS and your dialogue when you're on the phone, when you're on the phone with the doctor, it's a one line dialogue. It's a one sided dialogue. We don't hear the other person on the phone, but it is such a legendary sort of setup for Tony Soprano to recognize what kind of a guy he's dealing with. What do you remember from that day, from that week, from that time? Well, I mean, one thing I can tell you that you probably, hold on, I got my earphone here. One of the things I can tell you about that completely blew me away about uh, James Gandolfini. So we were doing a scene since you know the episode a lot better than I do, I just saw it a couple of times, you know, when it came up. And, um, at the house, at that beautiful house on the water, Whitecaps, right? Yep. And uh, he bought the house and, uh, you know, the whole plot. But at one point, he comes out after his fight with, with Carmelo, he comes out and he sleeps there. Yeah. And so I have to come and I'm running and I knock on him. I go, you know, like, what the fuck is going on here? Why are you at the house? You know, so we, but... So he was on the phone. I don't know who he was talking to. I didn't really get a chance, I'm, you know, which I, I regret that I didn't get a chance to hang out with him at all, uh, much on the thing and, and meet him. I certainly got a chance to work with him. He was terrific. Not terri- He was great. Um, and I'll give you an example of his greatness. So in this scene, he's on the phone at that time. And uh, like in his life, you know, he was talking to whomever he was talking with. And then it's like, uh, hey, Jim, you know, we got to do this scene. Oh, okay. He goes in the house. He lay down for, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute. That's what it seemed like to me. And then we do the scene. I come to the door. He opens the door. And he looked like he'd been asleep for five hours. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, stuff like that. You know, when you shoot a movie, you always think to yourself, 
or I think outside civilians, whatever, it's all about the lines and the stuff. But the you know the life of the characters, all this unbelievable stuff. Like you know, you can always tell if somebody like wakes up. You're in a scene where you're sleeping and you wake up. If you don't wake up correctly, you know it's kind of a it's a phony note. You're acting, and then it's very hard. It's like you know the dominoes are lined up. Mm. If one of them is out of the way, it stops falling down. You know, like all these beats kind of have to happen. There's a lot of pressure on you because of that. And at least I feel it. And he came to the door and it was like he'd been asleep for hours. And it was one of, you know, I've done a lot of work. You mentioned I've done 106 days or whatever. I've been working since I got out of drama school. And my first movie was regarding Henry in 1990. Mike Nichols cast me in this amazing movie. And I'd never done a movie before and all that stuff. I've worked with a lot of great, great actors. I've been so lucky. I have to say, that was one of the most absolutely extraordinary moments of my life as an actor to see that. Hmm. I, was, I was stunned by that thing. Now, everything else he did was great. You know, and he was big. I, you know, I wanted to not be intimidated by him, but he was a very, to me, you know, knowing the character, it was very intimidating. I felt it. Um, but that moment was just incredible. And uh, I remember that so clearly. And I think, you know, you get older and your mind does uh, change uh, things. But in my mind, it was wow. Wow. Fantastic. It's incredible. I love that it's such a little nuanced detail. It wasn't a specific line or a specific turn of phrase, but it was his, it was his visual. It was the way he presented himself to you. Uh, and I well, love that. I'll, I'll give you a line when he says to me, I'm not buying your house. Yeah. I mean, I have felt like saying that to people. I, I have many situations in my life where I want to say, I'm not buying your house. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I kind of like learned it, you know, from that acting moment, which is so crazy. That's wonderful to hear. Um, and this, and the, the cool thing about the, the question is it's been such a long time, but I always ask, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Because after, for all these years, that's what comes to mind. That's, that makes it that much more special and that much more concrete. Um, any insights on, well, actually, what were the specific notes or direction on your character in particular? Anything that you remember? Not really. You know, I, I rarely... I mean, I want to interact with directors, but I rarely interact with them. Uh, usually, if they like what I'm doing or they feel I'm in the right direction, you know, I may go up and say, y you think that's terrible or that messed up? Or, no, we like it, Bruce. And so I didn't get uh, that stuff. But I will tell you about a moment. Please. That I, I knew I was going to suck, and I felt like I really pulled it out. I was so excited by it. So when we did the scene with the Dean Martin music, yeah. You know, we're out in the back, we're on the thing. And, you know, it's like a Wilma right at the end, you know, I'm left out of the house and everything. And, uh, but I really wanted that to be, um, you know, alive, a, a real moment. And human. Well, they played, yeah, and they played the music for us. But then when we shot it, they couldn't shoot it with the music. And, you know, it's very hard to, you, you, particularly in a film. You really want to uh, listen and respond. But here, the music wasn't playing. I had to imagine music, and I was worried about that. I'd be acting, you know what I mean? I'd be I wouldn't really be listening to it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it just hit me that, uh, oh, no, I remember what it was, too. It was, I said, uh, 
fucking gangster asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, right? And I said to John, our wonderful director, you know, who shortly thereafter had a heart attack. And yeah. Passed away. That's fantastic. And he's a great director, great technical director. You know, he understood. I, I believe he was also a DP at one time. He was just a, he was a, a, a fantastic. And he was a lovely, a lovely person. It was really an honor to work with him. But I remember saying to him, and I said, fucking gangster asshole or fucking gangster assholes. And, uh, you know, it's like, come on, Bruce. Uh, fucking gangster asshole. Oh, okay. And uh, all of a sudden, the whole scene came to me. Because then, instead of sitting down and being frustrated, it was, I, I remember having this moment of kind of, not giving up, but like accepting the frustration. And I threw my head back. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, that really works. I was so pleased with that. I felt, because if it was like fucking gangster assholes, it just wasn't going to work. And because the music was going to be loud, yeah. it's like, it, it was so futile. It's like screaming at them. Right. But that happened on the moment. And that's one of the things that's really exciting about acting and really kind of terrifying because I prepare. You know, I really prepare as much as I can. I always want to be prepared. I want to, my lines are not easy for me. I work them, you know, I like to have enough time to do these things. And, uh, but uh, that one, it happens, then there may be a new understanding what Wallace Stevens called in uh, his great poem, not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself, a new knowledge of reality. Mm. And all of a sudden there's a new knowledge of reality right then. And you don't know it until you show up to work that day and then it happens or it doesn't happen. And the thing works or it's just like, okay, it's really kind of like tightrope walking and you're not really a tightrope walker. Right. You know, it's not like, you know, you're going to make it. You know, you're not the guy who can go across the Grand Canyon and know he's going to make it. It's like, I hope I'll make it. So that was the, uh, but then when it happens like that, where you do find the moment, in the moment. Because it's not like, well, Bruce, we've got five hours to shoot this scene. No, you got that scene and then, you know, you got to finish that scene and move on to the next scene. Uh, or that was maybe shot at the end of the day and the light is going away. So it's got to kind of happen in these next two takes. Um, so it was, that was one of, that was just a great moment. And I, uh, take such pleasure in remembering that. Well, it's and also interesting, the, the distinction between asshole and assholes, it's, it shows you that the focus of your frustration is actually on Tony Soprano himself, you know? Well, and of course we understand that now, and I understand that even talking to you, but for me there was something about how I was going to say the line and it had a completely different meaning. I wish I could tell you what that meaning was. I don't remember. But I remember that it was like I was hoping it was asshole. Because he and David and Chase, they're so specific about the language. Yeah. Was it frigging Goomba asshole? Was it fucking gangster asshole? You know, they had like three different possibilities, I remember. And then when I got there that day, I think this may be complete. You know, Robin may hear this and go, what is he talking about? We knew what we had written two weeks earlier. So I don't know, but that's how I remember it, you know, in my mind, in my faulty mind. Yeah. Any insights on the Sundance cap your character wore? 
No. It is a common dinner conversation amongst Soprano really? OCD fans. Yeah. Oh my God. The nexus between a New Jersey lawyer and a Sundance cap. That's fascinating. Well, now, you know, you think to yourself, I mean, the guy, you see, the problem for me, because I played, I played Alan Sappensley, I played guys like Alan Sappensley, and it's so easy to see them as assholes. And when <laughs> you are an actor, yeah. you, and you see your character as an asshole, it is such a terrible thing to do. Uh, because, you know, everybody feels justified in everything they do. I, I'll give you an example. My wife um, used to be an ADA in Manhattan in Morgan office. And, I remember, and she was a sex crimes prosecutor. She had a case of a guy who raped all of his kids. And when they brought him in, uh, when he was arrested and they brought him in and they interviewed him, they said, why would you do such a thing? And he said, hey, I didn't want them to learn about sex on the street. You know, everybody justifies everything they do. Interesting. And so if you don't do that with your character, and it's so easy to look down on them, and I, I do at times, uh, uh, I, I try never to, but you know, I make that mistake at times. It's a terrible, terrible error. Because what it does is, it, I talked about the tuning fork before, for whatever reason. I don't know why I gave up with that metaphor. But I love that. It's like it, stop, it stops uh, vibrating. Yeah. You know, you have to, like, really justify. I, you know, like Olivier talked about, you got to love the character. I totally believe that. You have to love the character. And, and because he's very motivated in what he's doing. Um, so, I don't know. I, I got lost here. Sorry. No, it's okay. And it's, this is one of the reasons why it's so great to talk to you. Because you, you identified him as an asshole. And you sold it. He's a legendary asshole, and and and, <laughs> well, you, and you mentioned that you you as Bruce the person was intimidated by Jim's stature, but on yes. screen, what we see in the frame is you going toe to toe with him, and you say it's a negotiation, and he knows that full well. And again, you <laughs> sold it, and that's a testament to your performance and your performing, and wow. it was wonderful. What were things like for you in the aftermath of that episode? Was there a Sopranos bump, so to speak? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, all I can say is, you know, I've been acting since for a long time, but when I, I got out of drama school in 1990 and that's really when I started getting professional work and I have just worked as an actor since then. So I'm sure that, you know, with the fact that people play these things over and over and that the Sopranos was one of those things where, you know, it was such a, um, you know, uh, like a big thing to do. I think that episode, if I remember, like 10 million people watched it that yeah. night. Or something. It was a very, and then, of course, afterwards, people watched it. So I, I kind of, I'm sure, has added to a level of legitimacy for me that I'm so grateful for. Like, oh, Bruce is an actor who's worked with these other people. And then they take, they say, oh, he's a good actor. You know, so let's consider him or let's hire him. Uh so I would think that, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the discography, and I'm very uh, grateful for it. Well said. I'm going to say a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind today. James Gandolfini. Uh, huge. <laughs> David Chase. Huge. Uh, brilliant. Did you watch the show? Were you a fan? Well, you know... It's embarrassing. My wife didn't, we had a child, and uh, 
she didn't want uh, her to be exposed. So I like we didn't get HBO at the time, and I just heard about the show. I mean, I'd see a little bit, and then when I got cast in it, I thought, you know, I should watch the show, even though it was in the fourth season. So I started watching it, you know, and I was absolutely amazed. I was blown away. I've never seen anything like it from the opening music. You know that drive uh, from Jersey. Yeah. I mean, that was, I it was incredible. I, I was kind of stunned by it, and a little overwhelmed and a little intimidated. I thought, you know, I don't know that much about this show, and I, you know, I got to kind of learn about this. But I, you know what? It's the great writing. The truth of the matter is that the great writing, it's like uh, there's a beginning, a middle. And whatever the end might be, but it's all there. It's all there. And so uh, even without the knowledge of it, uh, I was able, and I had some knowledge of it at that point. But, uh, you know, after that, it's so funny, you know, who became the biggest Sopranos fan in the world is my wife. And uh, we have the, the full set. And, uh, she can quote from the whole thing. I mean, it's uh, absolutely amazing. But I was, uh, I was uh, uh, you know, overwhelmed by it. I mean, it was... It's a unique thing. It, it, it is a, uh, a node in time. It's a turning point uh, in television, certainly for HBO. Uh, it, uh, it changed them. I would say it's a turning point in culture, to be honest with you. In, in what... culture. I agree with that, yes. You mentioned a phrase, it's all there. That's actually a direct quote from David Chase when people have asked him about the ending. He has said many times on record, it's all there. I love that you said that. Wow. There's, a, there's an interesting symmetry to what you just said. Um, oh. and I, I don't know if that was intentional or subconscious or whatever, but it was really cool that you I said that. I don't think that. it was... I don't think it was either, but I'm honored that, uh, you know, that we had that in common. Very good. Um, so you have seen it all the way through. Do you have a thought on the ending? You know, I think David Chase is an extremely enigmatic, uh, brilliant, and, uh, you know, guy who can deal with darkness. And that's really what it's uh, ultimately about, right? I love that. Uh, I love that you said uh, that. You know, kind of painted black. Right, the stones painted black. I mean, that's kind of what they did at the end, and I think there's a lot to be said with that. Um, you know, this guy just died. I just read an obituary. It's a painter. Is an obituary? Maybe he's having a show now. He's like 96. He's just in the Times the other day, and he only paints in black. Um, black. He feels black is uh, uh, his color, and that there are many different aspects to it. He's only painted in black like the last 50 years. But I think that's what David Chase was doing there at the end. He was, he was painting in black. And there's, uh, you know, ultimately that show. I mean, one of the great things about that show, right, was Tony. First of all, the acting is so amazing. And the, the therapy sessions, it's a brilliant idea. And they're done with so much feeling and verisimilitude. You know, just great. Right? And then he's in there and he's so sensitive. And he's like all choked up. And he says, I really feel bad for this guy. And the next scene, he kills the guy, you know? And it's like, it's right. so great because this is it. It's like, I want to be this wonderful person. But I'm also this fellow, whatever I am, you know, just like does what I do. And that is dark. And that is a dark view of humanity. And I think David was, uh, if that's what he said, it's all there, then I think that may be a piece of what I'm getting from what he said. 
Well, thank you for the ultimate pull quote for the ages. Uh, David Chase knows how to deal with darkness. I wrote that down, and that will definitely be a pull quote from this conversation. It is so true and is so accurate. And and Tony Soprano is the ultimate paradox, right? We love this character. We are attracted to this character. But like you just described, exactly. he is able to have a Coke with you and then a week later kill you with a piece of metal wire. Right, and, and really feel for you when he has that Coke with you. Yeah. You know, it's not like, you know, I'm having this Coke so I can, you know, put this wire in you. No, he's in love with you when he has that Coke with you. And then he kills you. And that is, like, so heavy. Is so heavy. What you said is such a simple combination of words, but it actually, what you said is so heavy. Moving away from The Sopranos, I'm going to name a project you were a part of in the past. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind today on those projects. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Well, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is my second movie. And I had been asked to play Levine at Yale in drama school. And I couldn't do it because I was playing Anthony and Anthony and Cleopatra. Talk about, you know, an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> um, so I had read the play and actually I saw the play. Paul Giamatti was an undergrad at Yale at the time and played Arano in it. Incredible. Um, amazing. But anyway, so um, you know, I knew uh, and I loved Mamet. I saw a production. When I was one of the things that made me want to be an actor, I saw a production of Sexual Perversity in Chicago when I was at SUNY before I even, I think even before I took an acting class. And I was so blown away by that. And the guy who was in it, my friend Seth Wilpon, if you're listening to this, Seth, I'm sending you my love. Seth Wilpon was a tough guy from Brooklyn. He'd been in the Army, uh, an artist, very sensitive. You know, he just sounded like a tough guy. He was such a, uh, had a, a brutal Brooklyn accent, a very heavy Brooklyn accent like this. And he was a very sensitive and brilliant guy. But it was such a great thing. He played the older a friend. It's an amazing play. And uh, so anyway, Mamet is just such a, you know, a great writer. And I, was, I had an audition for, I had done regarding Henry and I would, you know, things were like rolling along. I had this big part, a big movie. And so I auditioned for Williamson, which is the part Kevin Spacey played. Yeah. In uh, thing. And uh, I got to audition for Al Pacino and for Jamie. Foley, our wonderful director, and uh, I thought it went okay. You know, I felt pretty good. Al clapped it, actually, at my audition. It was very touching because, you know, I was very excited. So I get a phone call from Bonnie Timmerman, the casting director. She says, well, Bruce, I have good news and bad news. I said, she said, you didn't get Williamson. It's going to go to Kevin Space. And I was like, oh, oh man. I'd only got, you know, i just come out of school. I got a sure. double episode of Law and Order. I, got, I thought you just get everything you auditioned for. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> So then uh, she goes... You thought you'd just end up in a room with Al Pacino. No problem, right? Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. Huh? So she goes, but uh, Al really liked you. And the part's written for an older guy, but he'd like you to play uh, that character. Uh, and I was like, really? Can you imagine? And oh. What an asshole response. But anyway, I was like, all right. And uh, anyway, they picked me up in New Haven. The team still picked me up at like five in the morning. They drove me to Brooklyn where we were shooting at Queens. I go into the hairdresser. I'm like, you know, completely, I don't know, uptight. I didn't sleep at all the night before. And she starts like blow drying my hair and pulling it up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to look terrible. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. And Jack Lemon comes into the trailer for makeup. It's Jack Lemon, you know? Mm. 
And I'm like, hi, Jack, or hi, Mr. Lemon, whenever I said, hi, Bruce, hey, you want to run the lines? Um, sure, whatever you want. Yeah, he had most of the lines in the scene. Yeah. This guy was, how old was he then? No, look, I'm 64. So was he my age? Was he 70? He wasn't a kid. No. And uh, he had more energy. We shot all morning. He was like. Killer scene. And then he ate like a big lunch. He just got, and then we shot all afternoon. And I was like exhausted. Just, he was amazing. He had an enormous, and I think that's why he was so funny. I think his humor, like in Some Like It Hot, he had this energy, like the energy of 10 people. And I think that really always came through his work. Um, he was an extremely wonderful person to me. He was so kind to me. And you should know that. I mean, I want to say that it was, so, it was an honor to meet him and to work with him. But he treated me. He never said, he never came over to me and said, is that how you're going to do it, son? Or, you want to do this? None of that. He just, he was so respectful uh, of me. Whatever I did, he was, you know, uh, he but he learned his lines that morning. He worked on wow. the lines with me, yeah. and he learned those lines that morning. I can't learn those lines in five days. How did he do that? Right. This guy was amazing. So anyway, we go into shoot, and because of the mammoth, that writing was so superb. That, that was like rolling down a hill. That's another one of those. I love that scene. I, I, I still think that I was, I, you know, at the time I thought I could have been better. I saw it. I was like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. But the truth of the matter is that uh, the stuff I wanted to do in that scene, which were, was basically that I'm an intelligent person. And as soon as he comes in, you know, it's Shelley the Machine Levine. But he's over the hill. It's like an old machine. The pistons aren't working. It's like the guy came in with a 1940s jacket on and it's 19, you know, 78. I mean, it's like, I can tell immediately. And that's how I wanted to play that part. The second he came in my house, I knew something was wrong. Yeah. And here he is trying to sell me. And I know it. And it was so brutal to watch. <laughs> because I guess we've all been in that situation where it's like, you know, you're trying something and it's not working. And uh, I thought that that scene just played out beautifully because of that no i did actually watch it this morning again before uh, sitting down to speak with you to refresh my memory and it's aged so yeah. well you know what's funny is that subconsciously uh, your character's behavior and demeanor is exactly how i deal with anybody who's trying to sell me something i'm just oh, inherently really? suspect and you're awkwardly trying to get out of the situation right. and it's classic it's an all-time classic and that that movie um is top three all-time dialogue wise it's just an insanely, oh, it's, it's an insanely well, written and, machine. And not only that, Pacino, I mean, they're all amazing. Incredible. Everyone, everyone in that is great. Pacino, I think it's one of his greatest performances. That's a very complex part, Ricky Roma, and it's on film. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's amazing. What about Alan Arkin? Yes. Arano? Yeah. So when I'd seen Arano before, he's usually played, you know, on stage. He's played like, um, kind of like an idiot. It's like he's an idiot. And he's often played that way because it's like you can manipulate him, which is what Moss does. Alan Arkin played him, to me, like a broken man. It's like the mm. business had broken him. He knew exactly what was happening. He didn't have the strength to say no. And I was so moved by that performance. Talk about a choice. I mean, that that's available from that character. 
but it really took a great actor like him to kind of make that. That's a very complicated and complex choice. I, I was so blown away by that. A word or two on Copland. Oh, Copland. Well, you know, it was, I had just gotten a TV series and I was going out to LA with uh, our family. And so, and I remember I wasn't getting paid a lot and it was, there was another part I really wasn't crazy about it. I heard the director liked me, uh, which I was really touched by. But I was like an asshole. You know, so I was like, I really don't want to do this. I got to get ready for this TV series. I don't want to do it. So, but they liked me. So they wrote a scene for me with De Niro. They Amazing. said, Bruce, you're going to get a chance to work with De Niro. You can't say no. And I was like, all right. So anyway, I mean, I don't know what the fuck I'm thinking half the time. Anyway, it was so great. And you know what's so great about that movie? First of all, I'm very proud of that work. I think Copland is one of my, it's a small little bit, but I think it's a beautiful little bit. I think it's a little jewel. I'm just talking about me right now. I think the movie's amazing. They're all wonderful in it. You know, I, I, you know, I am not worthy, all that stuff. But in talking about myself, because we shot the first day, that scene was the first day of filming. We went down to, I think we shot it at somewhere downtown. Somewhere near the old World Trade Center, you know, before 9-11, certainly. And uh, we're down there, and I'm sitting around. Oh, and I remember what I did. So the part, as written, I was the lawyer for the dirty cop. Mm, yep. And I remember calling up a, a lawyer that day. I called up a friend or somebody in the DA's office. Can you give me a name of the lawyer who represents cops? They gave me the name of this guy. I call him up on the phone. He starts yelling at me. He's like, listen, I don't have any time. I got to go. I get paid by the, you know, I can't bet. And just that was so fantastic. It's like it gave me the character, you know? Interesting. So uh, I show up that night and uh, we're there. And all of a sudden this guy comes in with a mustache. And I'm looking at who's, he looks kind of familiar. It's Robert De Niro, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, this is really exciting. So we go over, and because it was the night before we started, and I guess Robert De Niro rehearses. This was so magnificent for me, because you never get a chance to rehearse. I mean, rarely. You do rehearse occasionally, but most of the time you don't. And if you do rehearse, it just messes up everything anyway. It's better off just learning stuff and go in there and do what you're going right. to do. Right. So we were reading the lines, and he was very open. And... Uh, I felt comfortable enough after a few times through to say, you know, I called this guy up and I think what would happen here is, well, I might say this or that. He goes, well, try that. And we did it. Don't you know, I showed up the next morning. Everything we improvised that night was, they changed the script to what we had done. And I think that scene, that scene hums. I, I love that scene. And I really love, uh, Oh, without patting myself on the back, I really like my work in that. I'm very proud of that work because I feel like I was really able to uh, exist in that world and work with these other, you know, great, great actors, all of them, wonderful, wonderful actors. And it's such a gritty movie, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, I, gr- I grew up in New City, and really, New City is cop land. There are lots of cops from New York and New Jersey that live up in Rockland County, mm-hmm. but 
they did it in New Jersey, but I think that in fact the real cop land is up in Rockland County, which is interesting. Interesting. I mentioned that movie. I uh, was excited to see that you were in it, and I went back and looked at your part as well. And there was a bunch of Sopranos alumni in that movie. Yeah, and then also, amazing. I'm a huge Sly fan, so this was very come yeah. together for me. I think that was a wonderful opportunity for him that he was great at. Absolutely. You know? A couple more projects that you were a part of that I'd just like to hear uh, what comes to mind today. Changing Lanes was a fun little movie. Now, that was another one we get to rehearse, and so... I go there, and the director was an English director, a wonderful director, uh, wanted to rehearse. So we show up. You know, I just had a little bit in that. I bet it was great. I got to meet Ben Affleck, who was terrific, and very sweet, and actually gave the whole crew and me a jacket from that. It says Changing Lanes with the name Gavin. His character's name is really, he's a very generous guy, and he's a fun person to be around. Very cool. So we're doing the scene, and I'm really breaking his balls. Because, you know, I'm on the other side. And our wonderful director said, um, you know, I don't, I think, Bruce, you should think of it this way. You're both lawyers, and after the scene is over, you'll probably go out to lunch and have drinks. Isn't that a fantastic note? Yeah. So instead of, like, really, you know, fighting, it was more like I was teasing him. And uh, it added, at least for me, I think it was a, it was a great touch. It was true. That is true. And um, uh, it was just, it added, it opened it up for me. And I think that movie was a very profound movie, the, all the AA stuff and all that stuff. There. Yeah. I think they really took a movie that just could have been like, a, you know, who did it, car chase, whatever, and turned it into a very profound uh very profound movie. No, totally. It's a, it's a rewatchable movie. It's a movie that when it's on, you can stop and watch it. It was just very well constructed. The other thing about that was we did a, a read-through. A lot of times in films, you don't sit around and read it. You know, because actors are always worried that they're going to be the one that gets fired. You know, it's like musical chairs. Sometimes when you read the thing, somebody gets fired. So, But anyway, we did a read-through, and Sidney Pollack, a blessed memory, was there. And, you know, Sidney Pollack cast me in... Um, that HBO thing that I did. Show me a hero. No, earlier the one in Florida about the re- recount. Oh yeah, yeah. He cast me in recount, and then he got sick and died shortly thereafter. Another, another great loss. Very sad. But uh, then Jay Roach took over and and kept me, which I was so lucky with. He's such a wonderful, also another magnificent director, wonderful person. And uh, but Sidney Pollack and I met him just briefly at that read through, and it was just so great. And he wasn't only a, thrift, a great director, but he was really a wonderful actor. Uh, certain roles that he just he you know he was so intelligent, and a lot of roles in film uh, that require intelligence, and you have to be able to just kind of have that. Hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can't really manufacture it. You know. Last project you were a part of, um, before I finish up with a quick lightning round, uh, Mr. Robot. It's one of my favorite current shows. A word or two on that yeah. series, the writing, and the creator, Sam Esmail, if you can. Okay, Sam Esmail is a genius. And he's also like uh, an Iron Man. The guy wrote the thing he, uh, with other people. He directed almost every episode. Uh, he created it. He knew what he wanted. Uh, he came from, I think he did one independent movie before this and then knew that this was, it, it's such a complicated piece and he's always at ease, never upset, yucking it up, uh, knowing what he wants. Uh, couldn't have been nicer. I, I love Sam Esmail. Um, I thought, and also that, now, 
some of maybe my best work I've ever done on film was in Mr. Robot. I did an episode uh, where I'm really coming down on Porsche Doubleday. Mm-hmm. I tell her to suck on my balls. I mean, it's really vulgar. You know, the character is very, very vulgar. And then there's a second scene. And we did, we spent the whole day. We only had a day on this. We spent a long time on that first scene. And the light was going. We had to do the second scene. We didn't have much time. And don't you know, in that scene when she accuses me of killing her mother, hmm. and uh, I really wanted to get all choked up, even though my character really wasn't that way. And it just happened. It all played out. It all just happened like on one take or two takes. Uh, and it was just a beautiful moment. I am so, I'm very proud of that. And I'm so grateful to Sam and to Portia for being such a great actress. You know, uh, takes two to tango kind of thing. Uh, and the whole crew, we had a great crew. But it's a brilliant show. I, mean, I didn't really understand that show. You know, I really am kind of like my character. I mean, I don't have a, a Blackberry, but I might as well. I'm very bad at all this electronic stuff. So I kind of use that for the, uh, that aspect of it. It's a brilliant show. One of the few that is actually, I would even put in, not quite Sopranos, but Sopranos-esque. It's visually stunning. It's written incredibly brilliantly. And obviously, like you, like you described, Sam Esmail is a guy who knows what he wants and he executes it almost what seems to be seamlessly. Super, uh, superior. You know, I mean, I've worked with so many people. Look, I also worked, another thing, I'll give a plug, uh, you know, whatever, but Ridley Scott and Matchstick Men. Yeah. You know, I mean, he is just a master. So it's like, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like one take, two takes, you move on. I mean, it's all, it's done, it's prepared, it's right there. But some of the best work I ever did was in that movie, and it all worked for me. They, you know, it's like you just show up. This thing, they're completely prepared, and you just kind of come in and do your thing. And uh, I won't say that's typical, but when it happens, it's really a beautiful thing. You've been a part of a lot of amazing projects, and it's been a lot of fun to chat with you. Quick lightning round. Last good book you read? I read a lot of, uh, maybe a map of misreading. I'm really into, who just passed away, this is all about death, this talk, uh, this reason, but Harold Bloom, the great uh, literary uh, scholar, who actually was a friend of mine, lived in New Haven. I have been, now he's someone who really, to me, is a, was a great acting teacher because he connected with his characters. You know, he wrote about them so brilliantly and uh, in his work on Shakespeare and so many of the things he wrote, but the anxiety of influences, great, great um, things. But A Map of Misreading is one of his books on uh, literary criticism. And it is just, it's uh, kind of thrilling. And uh, that comes to mind. What music have you listened to in the past month or week? Well, today I was listening to Mozart quintets, and there's the Opus 74 that I want to recommend. I mean, it's just, or is it 174? I can't believe it. I was listening on the train coming down today. Let me see if I have it right here. It's unbelievable. And uh, let me see if I can't find it. Is it here? Yeah, 174. Perfect. And you know, so I was, now I was listening, I was reading Charles Rosen. Here's another great, Charles Rosen, I don't know if you know this, I mean, some of our listeners do, but you know, was a great virtuoso pianist, but he was like one of the smartest guys in the world, and he just like knew everything, and he wrote a lot about music, uh, but he was also kind of bitchy and stuff, and it was fun, I mean, it's really fun to read him, it, it goes over, but he talked about the slow movement of this early quintet as one of the greatest things. Listen to the slow movement. You won't even believe it. The second movement of the uh, 
174 quintet of Mozart. You just go crazy. I actually play the violin a little. I'm not good. I started teaching myself in college, but I love it. I mean, I really just love it. I listen to music uh, constantly. Sold. Your character famously serves homemade shark fin soup to guests. Have you ever made shark fin soup in real life? No. No, I, uh, I don't eat shark. <laughs> um, what TV shows and films are you enjoying right now? Well, since we're talking about death so much on this crazy call, uh, not that it's a crazy call, but the fact that this would keep coming up, I want to tell you that recently, you know, we saw The Irishman, Yes. Which is magnificent. It's fantastic. And the acting, if you want to see like great moment to moment acting, oh my God, you know, the scenes are just, they're they're beautiful. I had this thought about it afterwards. It's like the movie is really about death. This is what Scorsese, you know, because if you think about stuff like the fantastic, you know, Goodfellas, it's so intense, right? The energy is so amazing. And this, it's almost like they're all moving in slow motion. Yes. There's like, it's almost like they're on a, they're in a different, you know, it's like the Kafka uh, short story, The Hunter Gracchus, where he's like, not dead, but he's not alive. And so he's on this river, just always going back and forth. Have you ever read The Hunter Gracchus? If you haven't, it's one of the freakiest and most wonderful short stories ever written by, uh, you know, Kafka. And um, but I felt like this was in some ways a, a version of The Hunter Gracchus. Uh, when uh, Pecci, walks over with the phone and his hand just hanging down. And then also when uh, that great scene with De Niro and Keitel, where he says, you know, this guy's saved And doesn't catch has the weirdest, almost the look of like he's a ghost or something. It's not like a, a, a person, even mm. though I, you know, I believe it. I'm not, it was like there was something else at work there. And I think that's why the three and a half hours also work because it really is like dealing, it's only like string theory, you know? It's like we're in a different universe. I like what you said, actually. It makes me feel better about the length of it. There's something at work there, you know? There's something else is happening that is bigger than what you see in the frame, so to speak. Like, there's, the story is meandering as it needs to. And also, uh, one of the things that I've heard that I liked people say about it is it's not glorifying that lifestyle like so many of the other movies and shows have done. Mm. It actually very much in a Sopranos fashion is showing what, to quote the show, the regularness of life in that particular world and how it's actually at the very end, the last frame we see with De Niro is him by himself alone. Um, yes. and he wants the door open. That's his connection to the world. That's his connection to whatever it is that he wants to feel connected to. And if the door's closed, he's completely shut in. There's something kind of metaphorical and prophetic about that. Right. And he can't even open up to the priest. No. You know, as, as a Catholic, I, I imagine he must be Catholic. His character is right. Irish. So Irishman. He Catholic. Yeah. And uh, he can't really even, at the end, uh, open up to his priest. He can't open up really to anybody. But then you think to yourself, I'm really glad that they focused on the violence uh, that he experienced in World War II. Then, you know, one of them comes to mind is the possibility of the PTSD. You know, it's like the CTE with these football players that go crazy. Yeah, that's you know, interesting. You think that's a good maybe, point. Maybe it's there, you know what I mean, that that... I don't know what his childhood was like. I, I don't know a thing about the guy. People like that, I want to avoid, you know, constantly. I really <laughs> yeah, yeah, there. most people I, do. You know, they're great, though. You want to watch them in the movies, but I don't want to necessarily spend too much time on them. But, you know, that whole thing about uh, the damage done during the war. Finally, any projects or things you're a part of that you'd like to tell listeners about? 
I'm doing a new TV series that I'm recurring on that I'm not allowed to tell you about because it's one of these things, you know, it's like, like the script, you get the script at the read through and then they take it, you know, everything now is the fear of piracy or that I'm going to say something on a podcast and then find myself basically blackballed, blacklisted and skewered in some, you know, sobbing in a corner somewhere going, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, but I am doing that. I did a movie. I had a little bit in it. I had so much fun. John Stewart wrote a political satire with Steve Carell and Chris Cooper, and I'm sure many other wonderful actors, but I worked with them. Wow. And uh, I had so much fun. Well, you know, I just did a couple of scenes. Will they be in it? I can't promise any of that, but John Stewart was wonderful. You know, just, uh, you know, shout out uh, about that. He, uh, it was just like seeing him on TV. I mean, he's one of these people who is who he is. He's super smart, super talented, super serious, but it was also him. And then there were a lot of extras in that. We shot it in Atlanta, and there were a lot of extras in Atlanta. And he was kibitzing with them to kind of get them into the scene. And they loved him, and he loved them. And the thing was happening. It was the best acting from extras I've ever worked with in 29 years. I couldn't believe it. It was like everybody was uh, Brando out there. It was just fantastic. And uh, Steve Carell was, you know, enormously funny and just, he was great. And Chris Cooper was, I uh, just had a little bit uh, time with him, but I just loved the guy. It was a wonderful, wonderful performance and just a wonderful person. So, yeah, that was, you know, these are the benefits of, uh, you know, the downside is, you know, you get rejected, you don't work, you don't know what's going to go on. But the upside is, Woody Allen said about, you know, we do it for the eggs with the uh, goose and the golden eggs and stuff. The, the, egg, the golden eggs are really just so wonderful. And, uh, you know, you got to say on, so grateful I get a chance to do it when I do. Beautiful way to end. Bruce, thank you so much. All the best. Thank you, Vic. Oh, thanks so much. You take care.